Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And today we're going to be talking about something that, well, I don't know. I grew up with vegetables and gardening and, and so forth, but it seems like half of the world has suddenly just discovered that there are vegetables and they're beginning to highlight them. Well, anyhow, we're going to be interviewing three people, or we're going to have three interviews yeah, today. Three, yeah, three, all three about different, it. three different ver- versions of a of a, uh, a a prayer to be more vegetarian, a prayer to be more maybe maybe, maybe even a little vegan. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I remember that. But, but anyway, it's all about veggies. Yeah? Eat them, eat them, eat them. Eating them, go. producing them down on the farm, watching the seasons go by. You, you'll get the drift. Nina Olsen is Swedish, but uh, she's lived in England. She's lived around the world, originally from Stockholm, but she's living in north of Amsterdam now in the Netherlands. And she has many talents, an artist, a, a, an art director, uh, a photographer. Yes, I, I like to do a little bit of everything. And um, as uh, my background is in art school and I've also worked a lot in magazines as an editor, an art director. Um, so I kind of like to be able to do everything uh, with my cookbooks. Well, here um, you are a recipe maker <laughs> and you present Absolutely. It. Yeah, and, and <laughs> you've, it's, you're vegetarian? Yes, I'm um, almost vegan. Almost. But uh, I do enjoy egg and uh, dairy products and cheese right. and yogurt. Yeah. So, but your book is um, Feast of Veggies. Uh, Feast of Veg is how you present it. Uh, it's a vegetarian cookbook primarily designed, as I read it, for entertaining. Yes, it's uh, it's for a new generation of plant-based feasts. So um, I thought because of the, the rise in uh, interest of plant-based food, uh, there wasn't enough uh, feasting recipes available for new vegetarians or vegans. So uh, I thought it was really exciting to make something for yeah, well, this yeah. new growing It is. It's, it's expanding. I, mean, I, I, I don't remember how many we used to get, not many... Uh, vegetarian cookbooks, and now we get scads of them. And um, and and you're right that entertaining has changed dramatically, and so has the focus. I mean, you, you need you suggest in your introduction that you, if you're having a, a, a dinner party, you need to really survey your uh, your guests to find out if if anybody is. Um, uh, gl- glucose intolerant or um, allergic to something or vegetarian or what kind of vegetarian. So it's a whole new world out there, isn't it? (laughs) It's definitely a whole new world of special diets and uh, people, if you invite a group of people, most surely uh, a third of them will have something at least that they are uh, particular about. So Actually, serving plant-based food, it's, it's something that doesn't exclude uh, a delicious meal for 
uh, omnivores. Uh, you, you don't have to be a vegan or a vegetarian to enjoy uh, a plant-based meal. So it's a kind of safe option also uh, but, 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 to go that route. But Anne, Anne will remember when, when my oldest son first visited my sister in, in England... He was vegetarian at the time. I'm not sure whether he still is or not. And the only dish she she knew how to make was bulgur wheat. <laughs> so, so, oh. so he got he got bulgur wheat for breakfast, for breakfast lunch. Every meal he for, got for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> oh, I, I guess he was longing for something else. Oh yes, yeah. oh, yeah. I think Indeed. I think he would have been, but he he was he was very dedicated. He 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 was worried about all the. The, the slaughter of the animals and fish and stuff like that in food. So I, I guess he, I guess he put up with it. But you know what yeah. I just read today. <laughs> this has nothing to do with you or your book, um, Nina. But mm. I just read that um, vegans have come out uh, against eating insects. Sorry, uh, insects. Insects, you know, because that's a, everybody views that as a way to kind of save the planet. Uh, using yes. available protein. I, I know. I, I think, yeah, it's it's quite interesting dilemma because uh, it seems to solve a lot if we could eat uh, fried ants and, well, and yeah, uh, grasshoppers, yeah, so and, uh, crickets, grasshoppers, and uh, but yeah, that's uh, one of the parts of eating plant based. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an ethical or a moral consideration. Uh, and where do you draw the line? So, being <clears throat> veget- many vegetarians eat fish. I well, mean, that doesn't really make yeah. you a vegetarian. Pescatarian, yeah. but there's so many variations, and I think, uh, yes, I don't know what I think about it. Yeah, actually, well, because I mean, I'm always changing my mind about it. Well, I was surprised about the insects. I mean, I really, I'm not sure why. But, Although but do remember, though, that, uh, that vegans are also against eating honey. Honey, I was just going to tell um, you that. Yeah, my, my, yes. my cousin <laughs> is a vegan, and I, I got to do Thanksgiving dinner for the family one year, and uh, I was warned against honey and because yeah. it was a product of bees, and they're insects, so I guess I shouldn't be surprised about the, uh, uh, the, the decision to, to ban insects from vegan diets. But have you have you seen that silly ad recently where there's a, a guy and his friend and he's in a butcher shop and he's ordering lots and lots of meat and his friend says, aren't you vegan? And he said, I'm paleo now. <laughs> so pe- oh! Apparently, apparently pe- paleo, paleo is the word. Yeah. Anyhow, yeah. Nina, back to your book. Um, there are a number of very interesting things I've learned with your book. The first one is, as I was going through it, I wondered, and then you came out and said it, that there is a lot of um, uh, compatibility between um, Japanese and Swedish food, or uh, not Swedish, Japanese and Scandinavian food. And believe me, I had never thought of that. Tell me how they relate. Uh, there is a certain sort of seaweedish uh, umami and a coldness to the food. Uh-huh. Um, it's, it doesn't have the same hotness that, uh, for instance, American and Mexican food. Or it shares a sort of a temperature of the food. And then I'm not talking about the actual heat. 
it's a sort of like... I, I know what you mean. Yeah, we like chives and dill, and it's not... Swedish food is generally never really spicy. Um, I think it keeps the same amount of interest and excitement as, you know, it's a sort of slow, subtle <laughs> umami flavor that we share that women, uh, it, it feels like seafood, but it, it's something that you can achieve with allium and seaweed. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know. You have a recipe in here. I have, like, someone sent us this a box. I mean, I feel like I have a lifetime supply of, of Maine seaweed, and I have a big batch of wakame, and I was pleasantly surprised to find a recipe in your cookbook for wakame. Yes, the wakame salad. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, there you so go. Delicious. So we, yeah. so we found well, it. That, that's something to try. <laughs> yeah. we, we found another yeah. way to use that stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, I was cooking with so much of this it's dried seaweed from Maine, and he, he finally said to me one day, don't you think a little seaweed goes a long way? <laughs> but the, the interesting thing oh, is... Oh, I think the it does. <laughs> the, the interesting thing, Nina, is, is it doesn't have a sell-by date. No. So I guess if we're still working on it five years from now, we'll still be okay. But even your recipe, I mean, all the recipes I've read call for like one ounce. That's all you know. We have a little more than one ounce. Yeah, but it, 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 it takes a lot of cooking to use up all the seaweed. You know what? We never, th- we, yeah. we never thought of using it in cocktails. No. <laughs> it's actually quite useful to cook uh, broths with uh, if you have a vegetarian guest uh, over and you want to make a stew or um, you want to make uh, a soup. Uh, so you could keep it as a regular... Um, Flavor maker in soups and, uh, okay. and little salads. Yeah, well, and, and <laughs> to put, make and, up your wakami. Yeah, yeah. And, and put it in green vegetable mixtures. No, it goes very well with um, dried beans. By the way, I mean, you know, like um, um, the, like the kind you use to make uh, cassoulet. You know, those kinds of beans. Oh yeah, so you can use the wakame also right, <laughs> to bring exactly. down the gas, <laughs> yeah. gas-inducing uh, uh, qualities. Yes. <laughs> now, no, you you range very widely. Though we've talked about Swedish and we've talked about Japanese, Indonesian, but you, but you you go around the globe. I mean, which just quick summary of all Italian. all the kitchen cultures that you embrace in your book. Um, yeah, let me see now. That's quite a lot, actually. So uh, there's Middle Eastern dishes, yes. uh, French and Italian. Um, there would be uh, definitely Scandinavian, Japanese, Indonesian, like you said, Korean. Um, yes, did I say Italian? I did. <laughs> Italian? I said Italian. You, you, have, you, you, have, you have a lot of Indian in there, too. Yeah, oh, yeah Indian, <laughs> yes, and some... Uh, yeah, Mexican-influenced uh, tacos. Well, I mean, yeah, it, there's it quite a lot of different nationalities here. Yeah, but it's, it's, it seems the reason because uh, most of these have um, uh, condiments, uh, some spices, um, and, and and you need to, some vegetables. You need to sort of boost up the flavor. So I can see why you'd be attracted to uh, to that kind of recipe. 
it does help with vegetarian food to um, create an interest with spices. Not just actual food, because, of course, a lot of vegetables are delicious with just a bit of salt and pepper when they're slow-roasted with olive oil. But uh, just also to present something uh, to readers that they can learn something about or find interesting. So I think it's interesting also to look at the influences from different kitchens in the world to to get inspiration for new dishes. Right. Tell us, first of all, what date is your birthday? I'm born on midsummer. Which <laughs> is? 1973. Yeah. No, I meant so what, what, day, <laughs> what month and day is midsummer? Yeah, midsummer is a very good day to have your birthday, especially in the Northern Hemisphere in uh, Scandinavia, because it's the most blooming and uh, green, lush period of the year. What we have quite is a it? lot of cold days. But what, what's uh, the it's day? It's the twentieth of June. Twentieth of June. Right. Because so our, our anniversary is the twenty-second, chosen pretty oh, much for that okay. reason. <laughs> Well, actually, midsummer is often between 19th and 22nd because right. it's depending on the summer solstice. That's what we, mm-hmm. we aim for the summer solstice. Yeah, we, we declared it the 20, 22nd of January, midsummer's uh, day. June, 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 oh, June. Uh, just, just June, I'm sorry. What did I say? January. January in there. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, but that's a really beautiful day to get married. Yes. Yeah, we, we thought so. Yeah. We, we didn't even think about it actually until afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, um, it's romantic. <laughs> talk, talking about your uh, your birthday and uh, midsummer, uh, tell us about. And I, I thought I knew a lot of Swedish food because of my our friends who were Swedish, who I've known for years and years. But I never heard of smorgastarta. Tell us what that is. Oh, did you never hear about Smogastorta no, from your friends from Sweden? <laughs> because I think it's like the most famous uh, after Swedish meatballs yeah. uh, in Sweden. It, it's it's the most uh, folksy and yeah, famous dish. So it's basically a savory sandwich cake. And you layer it with uh, mayonnaise, uh, traditionally mayonnaise, shrimps, and ham which is a little bit, uh, yeah, not as nice as the vegetarian version. Yeah, so this didn't, didn't sound very vegan. It sounded, started to sound kind of interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think if you're eating fish, for instance, then a seafood uh, smorgastorta is very popular and really delicious. But I think you don't need uh, fish or shrimps. Uh, you can have a totally delicious uh, vegan smorgastorta. With my recipe. <laughs> good, good. And, well, you yeah. have this. You have egg salad, which wouldn't be vegan, but you you have substitutes yeah. for all these yeah, recipes. Yeah. You have substitutes in case you're vegan as opposed to just vegetarian. Um, also, yeah. gluten free. You have all that covered. No, no, yeah, I'm, in the book, I've made sure that every. Almost every recipe is veganized, uh, if you want to, and uh, that there is options for gluten-free. But yeah. uh, the torta is actually kind of like a celebration of all the typical Scandinavian flavors. So it's uh, got lots of uh, alliums like chives and dill, and 
also we use yeah, eggs. Uh, and if you don't use egg, you can use something else like tofu or uh, scrambled tofu. And uh, there's often a mayo or fresh or mascarpone. You can, you can actually use Italian mascarpone to something creamy or a cashew cream. So it's, it's like uh, a savory layer cake. And um, it's really delicious. You have to try it because it's not so difficult to make. Actually, if you have a loaf of bread and you slice it up, you just add the layers like you're making a sandwich. Now, the dessert section looked particularly luxurious. The, co- the colors involved are really quite amazing. Oh. You, you, didn't get, you didn't get to the hands, hands leafing through the book. No, I mean, you want me to show you something. I don't know what you want well, me to do, show No, me. I just wanted to point I like the ice cream. My yeah, favorite is black sesame ice cream. Um, and while I was reading that, I, I thought of something interesting. We just got uh, um, samples of from a spice company. And uh, one of the spices is um, ground dried black lime. Have you ever had oh, that? That sounds interesting. Well, no, I, I tried really making it. We had it. A, a chef in England um, made his own from fresh limes, and he would let them dry, and they turn black. And the flavor is very interesting. And uh, I tried making mine, and um, uh, after. Keeping, they were finally, it takes a while on a sunny window ledge. And finally they were beginning to blacken and get ready. And the housekeeper threw them out. <laughs> so I never got Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, that sounds really, really interesting. Well, now we have, I have a jar of it to, to play with, which is the ground black lime. Um, I mean, it's, it's great. It sounds great to me. And I was yeah. thinking you could put that in with your black sesame ice cream. Oh, yeah. that sounds like a perfect combination, actually. Yeah. yeah. And what other desserts? You don't have that many, actually, do you? Uh, no, because actually we tried to make every recipe with vegetables, and it was a little bit of a stretch. I wanted a dessert <laughs> chapter. So we have the carrot cake and oh, matcha yeah. ice uh, green leaves, uh, so you see there's a little thread from it. The only thing is like the sweet tahini babka yeah. is, of course, uh, there is no vegetable in there. <laughs> it's tahini and and chocolate, but yeah, well, and no also black wonder. sesame ice cream. That makes yeah. sense. I so. just hadn't even thought about that. <laughs> but no. let me say. You cannot, have a, you cannot have a book about feasts without some sweet endings. So right, that's right. why the chapter is a little bit smaller, but yeah. Yeah, well, you, you had one chapter. I never, I never got all the way through it, but it started out. You were cooking a roast for your family. Oh yeah, <laughs> and I roast. thought roast. And I thought this is a vegan book. What's go, what's going on here? Tell us uh, about your roast. Very good roast. Uh, There's a few roasts. Let's see. Could it be the cauliflower? Oh, there's the cauliflower, yes. Yeah, that's a, that's uh, very nice. I've um, never gotten that to try, to turn out. I think that uh, the, the good, successful roast cauliflowers that we've ever had have come out of a very hot pizza oven at a restaurant, not, not in my own kitchen. Yeah, we can't, we, yeah. Can't, we can't get the temperature high enough, we think, to really, to yeah, really get it charred. Yeah, it can easily get a little bit too moisty instead of, yeah, you want it, of course, charred. 
I think it needs to go uh, a very long time <laughs> to really dry out. And, and I actually also, uh, because my oven is not huge, uh, I, I keep a little bit of the lid open to let steam out. So oh, it's a bit drier. And my Australian friend did that with our stove um, the, when making pavlova because of the air moisture that yeah. to control the uh, meringue for pavlova. Yeah, and if you have a recipe for salad in a jar, Nina. I, I don't understand. How do you eat a salad uh, in a jar? I know it's very popular, <laughs> but it just seems like silly. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's basically, yeah, it is a bit silly, actually. I agree. <laughs> it was an idea to for, for bringing as a potluck item to a picnic or just, yeah, bring it with you. And then you actually need to pour it out into uh, a bowl or something that you bring. Oh, I see. I, I, was think, I was thinking you would eat it out of the jar with a spoon. Yeah, you could do. But I think the idea with the jar is that you, uh, because it's a bit higher, the ingredients don't mix with each other. Uh-huh. So the salt lies next to the grains. Yeah, and it soaks a little bit with the grains, but it doesn't, if you have a bigger container with a salad and you have your sauce in there, it might just all go around and just look like a mess of, you know, gray colors instead of having a salad that right. takes a little bit that everything is apart. And so I think it's a little bit sort of that you mix it just before you eat it, like if you let it out on something more. I think eating it with a fork or <laughs> that's going to be like eating layer by layer. But you actually want to mix it, of course. Yes. Yeah. Well, Nina Olson, this book of yours, Feast of Veggies, make vegetables exciting. I mean, the recipes are incredibly exciting. And uh, I think it should encourage people to eat a lot more plant-based foods. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for saying that. makes me really happy. Thank well, you. I was very thrilled for you. <laughs> so thank you for talking to us. Thank you so much. It was really interesting. And, f- and, f- and um, I hope to speak to you again. Yeah. Yes, next book. The next book. <laughs> we're, we're, yeah. we're overdue to, to, uh, to come and ride bicycles in Amsterdam. Oh, I, oh yeah. Uh, Amsterdam is a perfect week break for a vacation. You could, you know, it's, it's wonderful. Like, yeah, I, I like it. I remember. There's a lot of American coming over uh yeah, especially in the spring and the summer. The thing yeah, I, rem- thing I, I remember heard that the Amsterdam is kind of fed up with the uh, tourists, as a matter of fact, <laughs> including the Americans. Yeah, they're a bit moany, the Dutch. I think it's a little bit silly <laughs> about the cheese stores and everything. Yeah. <laughs> of course, it's fun with people from all over the world coming over. Uh-huh. Well, it's an exciting city if you don't get run over by a bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Nina. Ciao, ciao. All right. Ciao, ciao. Bye-bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. 
Um, next up, we have uh, it's an unusual title, The Month of Their Ripening. Um, but the author, George Ann Eubanks, can explain all that to you. Well, George Ann Eubanks, as I said, that certainly is a Southern name, and, and you were a Southern woman, and you know of what you write when you produce this, The Month of Their Ripening, subtitled North Carolina's Heritage Foods Through the Year. Uh, it's beautifully organized, and uh, the thing that stands out the most, of course, is that uh, you are uh, a professional writer. I mean, it's a very beautifully written book. So congratulations, well, yeah. Um, Thanks very much. Yeah, yeah and you, you thought out your premise of this book um, very carefully, I suspect, right? Yes, yes. Could you describe um, it, yes? Right. Well, I have a fig tree in my yard beside my condo that I planted. I bought a little pot, a little fig twig at the farmer's market, planted it, and in 10 years I was having a profusion of figs. <laughs> and I, I was struck by those figs, how fragile they are, how important it is to pick them at just the right moment, how you need to eat them quickly if you're going to eat them fresh because they don't last. Uh, and and you also have to fight off, I have found, the squirrels, the turtles. The turtles actually <laughs> come and sit under my tree and wait for the, the squirrels to make them drop, um, the birds, everything else. And yet there's this paradox that fig trees, you can cut them down to the ground, and if they're planted in the right place, they'll come back. Yeah, so you they're both that. durable and fragile. With, we had uh, gooseberries planted and even put netting over it, and, and the birds got to them before we even knew. <laughs> and, and in D.C., we had a cherry tree. And, and right. all of a sudden, it, it would just be swamped with birds, and we never got a ripe cherry. And now, yeah. now we're fighting them over blackberries. <laughs> so. Yes. So that's part of the premise, um, Anne, that, that there are certain foods uh, that have been important in North Carolina and in other parts of the country, uh, you know, we, we, these are not exclusive to North Carolina, but there are certain foods that, that really don't keep well that you have to wait for and that uh, are at their best at a particular month. And so I tried to find a dozen foods that fit those categories, and then I took my writer self, because I'm not a, I'm not a, I, when my editor said, be sure in, in your book proposal spend a lot of energy on your food writing, I said, guess what? I have not written a lot about food, but I've eaten a lot. <laughs> so, Well, yeah, uh, I mean, you're obviously a professional writer. I mean, that comes through right at the very beginning. And they're beautiful essays. They're, you organize it as a series of essays, more or less, right? Right. Uh-huh. And, some and of the, it was a journey to find some of these foods and a journey to learn their history. So I try to take the reader along with me in my curiosity and ignorance to learn about these foods. Now, what about what what animal is it that likes the persimmons? A possum. See, that's what I said. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess they, I guess they, they know how to spell too, huh? Uh, yeah, well... <laughs> You, you remember that when we were in Abruzzo in Italy, went to visit those people who did preserves and that kind of thing. Yeah. And they they had a huge persimmon tree, mm-hmm. 
and there were all these ripe persimmons. So we we picked them all, and then someone had driven us half a day to get there for lunch and half a day to get back, and we forgot to capture. We forgot to take our loot. <laughs> oh no! So, so the loot the, the loot was left to our chauffeur. <laughs> ah, no. Um, some of these uh, chapters um, are uh, the categories of the, the food are kind of surprising, beginning with January, which is the featured ingredient is what? Snow. That's Snow. right. <laughs> which, of course, for you all in Pittsburgh and for those north of the Mason-Dixon line, sounds ridiculous that that would be something we'd get excited about. But we have... The farther you go from west to east in North Carolina, the fewer are the snowstorms. And so people get crazier and crazier the farther east you go when it snows. It's like a big holiday is declared, and, of course, then we all make ice cream. Yeah. (laughs) Our grandchildren um, were living in South Carolina when they grew up, and um, we would get these photographs they were building a snowman, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. they, 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 they didn't say until later that you know it lasted about three minutes before it melted. <laughs> they, right, they right. Scraped, they, they scraped the snow off of like three or four <laughs> neighbors' yards in, in order in order to get enough snow to build a snowman. It was a pretty right. cre- it was a pretty creditable snowman. Yeah, right. Well, and it is this the the idea that it happens so seldom here that uh, makes people long for the taste of snow cream and everybody has their idea of what are the best ingredients which vary tremendously and my favorite story is that there is a bed and breakfast in the eastern part of the state in a town called Williamson which is basically known for its oyster bar and the B&B set has on its breakfast menu snow cream (laughs) and then in parentheses it says when available (laughs) about every five years now, as you go along, um, you assemble a cast of characters, um, and uh, and you must have done a lot of research in this. Um, the next one I was going to approach is goat's milk, um, and but but all these characters tie into the the existence of this ingredient or the um, the the idea of herding goats in, in North Carolina, right? Right, because uh, the poet Carl Sandberg's wife, Lillian Steichen Sandberg, convinced him that the family needed to leave the shores of Lake Michigan, where she was getting up at 5 in the morning in the freezing cold and in the wind to milk goats. She convinced her husband they should move south, and she picked this area in North Carolina that's quite beautiful, uh, the home was already there. It had actually belonged to the Secretary of the Confederacy way back when. And she established her goat farm there and bred goats for many years, won many, many ribbons. And as a result of that, the American Goat Dairy Association is headquartered in North Carolina. But who knew that? I mean, honestly, I was so I stunned. Know, really. I mean, I, first of all, I never would associate Carl Sandburg from his poetry with anything having to do with the South. Right. Well, he spent, he moved here, uh, and lived almost 30 years here and wrote a good bit of his, uh, poetry in North Carolina and loved to entertain people. Marilyn Monroe came to visit him 
uh, here in North Carolina, and from time to time they'd bring one of the goats in the house and let it run around in the house. <laughs> it was quite a scene. Oh, boy. So, and, I mean, my mother was mad for Shad. And, oh. uh, yeah, and... Um, I mean, it was always such an adventure for me to have my fishmonger um, fillet it. <laughs> well, you know, that is a skill that's hard to find nowadays, somebody I, who can fillet a shad. I haven't seen a shad in so long, honestly. It, it's diminished. to the. Uh, the I, I think the catch, the catch isn't anything like what it used to be, no. I'm guessing, right? Well, that's like everything no. else. There have been so many impoundments on our rivers and so many ways that it's been difficult for the shad to spawn upstream. But, you know, we have a huge estuary system in North Carolina, and we do have uh, a pretty good uh, shad catch that comes up. Now, the herring, the smaller herring, are, are really reduced, but the shad are still coming. And uh, it, But still, there are people who in this state who are not familiar with that fish which has a long history going back to George Washington. Yeah. Well, of course, my mother loved the Shad Row, too. Mm-hmm. So, um, but again, I never, I didn't associate it with North Carolina. Um, and then the next month, July, was even stranger. I never even thought, of, I didn't know this particular cantaloupe. I knew there are varieties of cantaloupes, but this one is special, right? Yes, and there's only one man left in Ridgeway, North Carolina, who is growing the original cantaloupe that a, that German farmers started growing there at the turn of the 20th century, at the beginning of the 20th century. And uh, the Ridgeway cantaloupe became a delicacy much desired in places like Pittsburgh and New York and Boston and Philadelphia. And they said that uh, they shipped so many cantaloupes from North Carolina north uh, that they said when there was a big parade in New York or Philly that you would often see people sitting on Ridgeway cantaloupe car, uh, crate that uh-huh. had the logo. They patented and registered the name Ridgeway Cantaloupe, but its most famous destination was the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York. Yes, you mentioned that in your book. And, right. And, yeah, and, uh, of course, we haven't been there for a long time either. Um, well, it's actually closed and being turned into condos by the Chinese. Now. Oh, I knew there was something, yes. Yeah, because we, because <laughs> I remember feeling sad because we used to like the, um, the, the restaurant there under a certain chef. Pe- pe- right. Pe- Peacock Alley was called. Peacock Alley, right. Well, and so many, uh, so many dishes were originated there that are common, uh, in our lexicon. Veal Oscar. Oh, yes. For example. Yes. And now we talked about figs. Um, you, this book is all about savoring the season, right? But exactly. you're not opposed to, I mean, everybody now is putting away food, uh, preserving the food in one way or another. So you're, right. you're not opposed to preserving. Um, you just want to point out that the, the, the attractiveness of having everything in a season. That's right. And and a fresh fig is very different from a fried a, a, a Dry. dried fig. And right. in fact, um, I read one in, from one scholar that something like 3% of the world's figs are consumed uh, at the moment they're picked and the rest are dried. Right. Um, yes. 
So uh, it's they're and, very and fragile. There are lots of people who've never tasted uh, ripe figs. Well, they're very fragile, but uh, I I was surprised how expensive they were in the United States because um, I when I went to school in Italy. You just pick them right off the trees, you know. And oh, them. right. You also, yeah. you also used to pick them right off the fruit stores in the markets, too. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, as I said, uh, our kids lived in South Carolina, and I was very excited the first time I came across this item, the next the September item, in the supermarket, because I thought <laughs> a fruit that I never even heard of the scupper dongs, whatever they're called. Scupper dongs, correct. Yeah, yeah scupper dongs. So they're native to the United States, so I guess they're native to North Carolina, huh? They get their name from a river in North Carolina. Right. The scupper River, yes. And uh, when the first explorers in 1584 uh, landed on the shores of Roanoke Island in North Carolina, one of the things that uh, Thomas Harriet uh, and some of the other folks on the voyage wrote about was the profusion of grapes, and many of those grapes were the hard-hulled scuppernongs. Uh-huh. Yeah, and they would make a sweet wine, right? Yeah, it's a very sweet wine. People have gotten pretty creative. We have an enormous winery in Duplin County, which has probably had terrible flood damage because that's one of the counties where the water was bad, mm-hmm. in fact, there was a picture in the Raleigh paper yesterday of fish that had washed up on I-40 and were left I saw them. on the highway. Yes, right. Uh, the highway was totally underwater, though. Right, and then the fish just kind of died, and, and they're on the highway, and now they're having to remove them. Yes. But the scuppernongs grow especially well as you go toward Wilmington. And um, uh, this winery, the Duplin Winery, uh, has a... A tasting room there and also down at Myrtle Beach, so you can imagine that their wines are quite popular and, and they're sort of novelty wines. You wouldn't want to drink a lot of them, but they're a good aperitif or a dessert wine. Well, I like the fruit. I, I, I bought it right on the spot so I could taste them and I liked it. There's nothing else like it, no. really, that tastes. Mm-hmm. Um, I just read about ramps. Apparently, they are getting hard to find, too, because uh, chefs uh, like them so well. No, a, yes. ramp, a ramp's October, no? Uh, no, that's April. April. April, April. I say. Because ramps are a big thing in West Virginia. Yeah, they they a, are. They have a ramp huge, huge thing in West Virginia. Yeah, I've, I've been to that festival. But Yeah, it's it's a, probably, the state, West Virginia is probably the state that makes the most of ramps. Mm-hmm. As a tourist attraction. Yeah, you go, apparently, if you if you're among the cognoschetti, you go to a ramp dinner of all your friends, and you you better go because you're going to smell of ramps for the next <laughs> three weeks, and and if you don't eat ramps, everybody else will smell and you won't, and that'll be worse. That's right. The ra- a ramp consumed equals ramp perfume. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And in the in the classrooms in Cherokee, North Carolina, where the ramps have been eaten for three thousand years by the Cherokee tribe, the school children make a point of eating ramps and going to class. And then, if they're lucky, their teacher will put them out in the hall <laughs> to spare the rest of the class. 
<laughs> and they don't have to do their lessons that day. Oh, that's, funny. The, that's the story. <laughs> Sounds like a story. So, yeah. Um, well, there's a case where popularity is actually uh, limiting the availability. Um, now, the next one, May, is probably my most favorite food. Uh, really? Soft shell crabs. I love soft shell crabs. Uh, I always think of them like, an, I, I guess one of my writing assignments was I did a, um, a, a competition in New Orleans about which restaurant did the best soft shell crabs. So we ate two meals a day for five days or seven days of soft shell crabs. Wow. <laughs> And there are a lot of varieties, a lot of ways to fix them. I mean, I like, my style is, is um, spicy, but then sautéed, which is New Orleans style, basically. Right. So, um, now those are farmed now, or how, how does that go with North Carolina? Well, they're not actually farmed. The, uh, the fish fishermen go out with their cages, uh, and, and it's really this kind of thing where they all get tight-lipped and they don't want to tell each other what they've seen right. out there because they're all waiting for the big harvest to happen. And my most reliable source says when the potato blossoms bloom and <laughs> you can smell the honeysuckle is when the soft shells are starting to shed. <sighs> so they go out and get them out of their traps and bring them back to these big uh, tanks, open-top tanks called shedders, and oh, right. actually, the one family I uh, interviewed, the whole family gets involved in monitoring the hundreds of thousands, literally, of crab that they uh, have spread out in the shedders, and they pick them out as soon as they shed and put them in a little corral so the other crabs won't damage the ones oh. that are without their armor. Right. Oh, okay. So, so, so the, the the shedders are not the people who do the sh- shedding. No, no, I was imagining they were. They're actually the crabs which have lost their shell, and they have a soft one that hasn't hardened up yet. And that's a shedder. Yes, and that's a shedder. So this huh? is yet another uh, practice in patience. That as someone who traffics in soft shell crab, you have to wait for the crab to be ready and mm-hmm. do it. And then the idea is to put them on ice and ship them as fast as possible. Yeah, they don't last very long, I know. Um, You said there was one problem with them. Um, When I get them, I have the the, uh, fish um, butcher snip the eyes, and there's something behind the eyes that he takes away. But the rest of it, I eat all of it. And you said Mm -hmm. there was one thing that... The tamale, the mustard. Yeah, what's what's wrong with that? Well, it's an organ that kind of, uh, kind of like a liver that takes all the toxins out of the crab, and so uh-huh. that's where the crab is processing bad stuff. And some people like the taste of it. Uh, I find it bitter and kind of unsightly, uh, such a garish color in the midst of this lovely brown thing mm-hmm. um, that's been. Fried, uh, as the North Carolinians prefer to eat them. Uh, so, and, and actually, my experts were generally in consensus with me about that to remove the tamale. Okay. Um, it, I, I learned what a service berry was, and who is it that likes them? That's funny bird. Oh, the cedar waxwings, which are such a gorgeous bird. It's almost worth sacrificing your service berries to them. Uh-huh. And I never had a service berry either. 
Um, and you know they grow really well in Pennsylvania, and up there they're called some t- some people call them shad bushes because they bloom the same time the shad are running. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. But so, in North Carolina, and they call them service berries because it tells the preachers when it's time to get back on their horse and ride the circuit and perform services <laughs> for the church people. <laughs> So many good stories. Um, yeah, the, uh, of course, you have apples in there. We've interviewed a whole bunch of uh, of apple breeders. It's a whole other world. And, it is. Yeah, and persimmons. Uh, I I love those. Um, they'd be very different from the persimmons that you, the Asian persimmons. They'd be a different kind. And um, yeah, yeah. And and then finally, we come to oysters, which those are farmed, right? A good many of them are. It's becoming, uh, it's an expensive business to get into. And so one of the farmers that I met is a fellow who was a hedge fund manager and made his fortune in his 40s and decided he wanted to get out in nature and now he's farming oysters. It's hard for some of our regular uh, fishermen in North Carolina to get in the business because it's a huge investment. But more and more, we are beginning to cultivate oysters in our uh, creek and sounds rather than try to harvest them by dredging them or whatever, which is damaging uh, to the environment. But it's been a perennial issue in North Carolina since the 1890s when all those Chesapeake Bay folks were coming down here and getting our oysters and taking them back up there and selling them and calling them Chesapeake oysters. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Dirty dealing, dirty dealing, dirty dealing. Yeah, <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna take a while for that business to recover after all this flooding, though, right? Oh, I'm just sick about it. I am. Yeah, I I, I haven't had a chance to call a couple of people in the book that I do want to talk to because I'm sure they're busy with more important things than catching me up. But it's uh, it's been difficult, and with all the pollution and the coal ash and the everything that's been set loose by this hurricane, it will be a while. Although we do remember that when uh, Hurricane Floyd came and the um, the pork producers uh, had their hog lagoons overspill into the rivers, things recovered pretty quickly. The dilution of that toxic mess happens pretty well in our natural system, but this feels like it could be the new normal. People are using that phrase to talk about these hurricanes. So I worry about the viability of these oyster farms long term. Well, that, that leads us to your epilogue, which I found sad. And that's not even the end of it, because that was before this current um, hurricane. That was after Hurricane Matthew, yeah. yeah. So it was before the, yeah, but a lot of, um, not the, the uh, I mean, a, a lot of the people were not doing so well that you featured in, in your essays, right? Yes, uh, although I think the ones who have been long-term coastal folks are not surprised by this, and they're certainly hurt and saddened and damaged, but they have a great resilience. Uh, you kind of have to if you're going to live on the coast of North Carolina. You, you don't think it's going to worse? You don't think it's going to get worse? I do. I actually do think it's, it's probably going to get worse. And a lot of the development, uh, when I was first living in North Carolina in the 70s and 80s, the development that's there was nothing like it is now. And it's, uh, it's really 
kind of scary what could happen. Yeah, well, uh, they they um, built right on the water. Even experts told them not to. Right, yeah. right. We have a couple of Cassandra scientists here in North Carolina who yeah. have been singing the same song for years and nobody's listening. Nobody listens, right. So, yeah. well, uh, this is a fine piece of research as well as a fine piece of writing and a, a portrait of, of a, uh, a, a place in time. George Ann Eubanks, the month of their ripening is, uh, it's, it's a great book. And I, I wish you Thank a lot of luck with it and success. Thank you. It's not a matter of luck, it's going to be success because it's, it's loaded with information and colorful details. Okay, well, um, stay, stay safe there. Thank you. And thanks for the time to talk about this. You oh. guys are fun. <laughs> thanks. Okay, Georgian, go out and get them. All right. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Most of us think in terms of four seasons, but not the folks at Stoll Lake Farm. Um, it's a, a communal living situation, but more updated, modernized than what we used to think of back in the day. And uh, Elizabeth's going to talk to us about how it all works. It's The book is called Seven Seasons at Stoll Lake Farm. And here's Elizabeth. Yes, um, we're going to be talking uh, to Elizabeth Young, um, a, a long-term resident of the Stowell Lake Farm. And the, the book we're going to start with is Seven Seasons on Stowell Lake Farm, and then we'll we'll talk more about the concept and the activities available. Thanks for talking to us, Elizabeth. Um, the pictures are wonderful. Um, I can't get over how perfect everything looks. <laughs> I mean, the people are all good looking. And <laughs> um, it, it, now let's, let's, how far from the truth is that? <laughs> well, you know, we had a very, we had a very skilled photographer. I mean, our our place, the farm, is beautiful, and beauty is one of the things that we we really value here particularly i mean it's it's creating space for ourselves to live in but it's also creating space for um we're a retreat center as well so it's it's creating space for people who come here on retreat and it's also creating spaces for um for the natural world to thrive and so all of that is really um, the beauty aspect is really important for us in what we create here. So I think the book accurately represents the beauty of this place, um, but also we did have an amazing photographer. Yeah, well, and, so and the that, other thing is that a lot of you look, um, well, three of you look related and also the children. 
I mean, I know you're well, not, but I'm just saying. I know, isn't it funny? Yeah, yes. but I know often we get uh, we get sort of mixed up. Like even even here on Salt Spring, people mistaken mistake us for each other or think we're sisters or whatever. But right. you know, there is actually no no relation, no real relation in that way. Now, yeah. now, where where are you, Elizabeth? You put a, put a dot on the map, you because it's a, it's a little bit out of the way. Yeah, so we are. Um, we are off the coast of British Columbia, so we're we're just west of Vancouver. We're in between Vancouver and Victoria, so we're not as far out as Vancouver Island. We're in a little group of islands called the Gulf Islands, so right in between the mainland and Vancouver Island, and that's where Salt Spring Island is. Well, I imagine it's getting to be pretty cold there, right? You know, we had uh, we had a real cold snap a couple of weeks where we were having lots of frost and ice everywhere, and then now we've gotten a little bit of of more wet, warmer weather roll in. So today it's it's quite mild out actually, but that's kind of what our winters are like. They fluctuate, like we we fluctuate right around zero, so dipping below sometimes, but then often above zero. So we get a lot of rain and rain and cloud and, and that kind of thing. But when it's sunny here in the winter, it's, it's just gorgeous. Now, that, for, for those people who are puzzling over this, because it's quite far north where you are, there, there is an equivalent to the Gulf Stream, which flows across the, course, across the North Atlantic. There's an equivalent ocean current which bathes the western coast of Canada with milder weather than otherwise there would be. Yeah, exactly. It's it's definitely this sort of warming influence of the ocean that that allows us to be so mild in the winter. And, yeah. and it, it allows you to farm. Yeah, exactly. Somewhat differently, yeah, than, yeah. somewhat differently than you would just north of the 49th parallel if you were in the eastern part of Canada. Quite different, yeah. Yeah, we would be buried in quite a lot of snow, I think, right. by now. <laughs> Uh, the the book is uh, beautifully photographed, as you said. You're a good photographer. Um, it, it's subtitled "Stories and Recipes That Nourish Community." So uh, we're talking about um, a number of different issues here. Uh, why did you write the book to start with? Well, you know, it came about actually um, quite a number of years ago. So when I moved to the farm, there was um, there was a community of people already living together, but it really took a bunch of us, and it's sort of the group that is now, you know, that's represented in the book, to really commit to sort of a life on the farm, to then form form the community structures and kind of the culture of the community that that then now we've sort of, now we have. And so what happened was we were we were really creating a lot of um, traditions together that were enriching our lives and we found really fulfilling and inspiring. And so one of the the things that we wanted to share right off the bat was some of these ways we were celebrating. We were celebrating some of the traditional holidays, which everybody, which, you know, a lot of people do celebrate together, but then also other holidays around, you know, the cycles of the earth, the summer solstice, the winter solstice. And so, so some of these, these things we were celebrating together um, just inspired us so much that we, we thought, why don't we write a book about our celebrations on the farm? And, but then quickly 
like almost right away from there, we even spoke to, you know, people who gave us feedback that was like, well, no, you can't just write about the celebrations. You just, you have to write about everything. And so basically right away it became, okay, how do we write about this whole life together that we're living? In, in a way, the book sort of wrote itself, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was a very, it it did in the sense that, like, we, because we, we followed the structure of a year on the farm, that, that piece really sort of held and does hold the book. Um, but there was also a lot that, of course, when you actually start writing it all down, you realize, uh, you know, you have to, you have to sort of really peel through all the layers and, like, what is it we're sharing and what's, what's valuable to share and, and how are we going to sort of portray um, this story together? Now, you know, um, people should not be expecting a, um, a, a utopian community uh, like some others that have come and gone, especially because most of those utopian communities are gone. This has a, a different foundation, and I'm not sure I understand what it is. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that our community is very, we have tried to share some of the realness because of course if you flick, flip through the pages, it sort of looks a little like paradise. Um, but, you know, some of the stories that we tried to share are, you know, how do we, how do we deal with sort of problems on the farm, conflict, what's our, how do we do, you know, how do we get into decision making and all of that. And, of course, we were, you know, we wanted the book to, to share a lot of different aspects. So it's, it's both, I mean, we're hoping that it's helpful to people who are interested in cultivating community in, in many different ways. And it's also not a, it's not sort of a how-to. It's not like you can read our book and then, oh, just like, I'm going to start a community <laughs> kind of based on this. But, but what we were trying to show is that it is, you know, whenever you have a group of people living together, it, it's real life. There's, of course, there's conflict and problems and all of this. And, and yet we have a, a group of people who um, have enough common, sort of it's this common idea of we, we want you know, A, we want to live together, and B, we want to live together in a good way. And so we don't have those people who are sort of stirring the pot for the sake of stirring the pot, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, we, we don't have a lot of people who want a lot of drama in their lives and all of that. So so you kind so of screen who's in there? I mean, the, you, you, the core group it remains the same, right? Yes, the, the core group has been the same now for um, the past 13 years, and now we really have actually this this other this next layer of the community. Actually, we have um, that then those members are represented in the book too now, where where we really have like we've really expanded our community. The core the core group r- was really three families and a couple of other individuals, and now we've we've grown to you know almost 25 or so that we are now so um and and that that sort of second wave of people coming into the community was able to come into something that that was sort of established and and it's and it's working it's continuing to work and people are thriving here and and are and are sort of finding their their place in it all too 
Now you've almost created a generation, right? Not not quite. Yeah, not quite. Yeah, but not not quite. We've had we've had pretty close. Pretty close. Yeah, one of the children who um, he moved here. Aliyah is our oldest, and he moved here when he was eight, and he is now you know twenty two, I think, and so he's now kind of you know grown up and moved off the farm, and so yeah, now we're we're sort of in that. We're not quite there with all the kids, but yeah, that's that's going to be an interesting evolution too. Is like where does it go with with the, you know the growth of the kids and the next generation and all of that? Yeah, and, well, and now Jennifer grew up. Hold, in, hold, in on the, hold on a minute. You have one very interesting member of of the community that I I mustn't we mustn't forget to include because it's because it's it's got a little backstory. You have a member a member of the community called David Brown. And I thought, thought, hold hold on a second, I'll bet David Brown is a tractor. (laughs) And and sure enough, David Brown is a tractor. And the reason reason that I knew that is that my cousin Michael, when he graduated from high school, went to work for a company in my hometown of Huddersfield, Yorkshire, England, to the home of David Brown. He was a mechanical engineer and he went to work for David Brown, which is what I guess you did then. And the, wow. Here's, here's the funny part about it. it the David Brown Tractor Company yeah. is, is the car company that makes the Aston Martins that uh, Sean Connery used to drive as James Bond. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> but, but, but you didn't. Know, but you didn't know that. Huh? I did not know that. That's mm-hmm. amazing. <laughs> so, well, That's I, 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 what I started to say there was um, that. Uh, okay, so Lisa essentially was founder and raised three children, and like one of them was uh, Jennifer, right? Yeah. And she left to go to school, and she came back, and. Um, Let's see who it was. Her best friend then that joined, right? That's and that is me. You, yeah. And you both have your own families that you're raising and husbands and stuff. Yeah, that's correct. Okay, so um, possibility is that it could keep going on, right? Well, yeah, and I think that that you know the example that Lisa has set for us is. Um, is really is really what we can take into the future because what she was able to do, and this is where I think um, some people who who have land or they might have a farm even, and they want to create something like this. This is where the the founder um, or the landowner often has a bit of trouble, and it's this sort of letting go, letting go of all of the power uh, or the control and and sort of getting out of the way a little bit so that that the people who have come can really make a life for themselves and really feel like they are they're also part of this part of the part of creating the vision for the future and so i think that's going to be you know when we get to that stage where there's the next generation who either want to stay or have left and come back that that we're also sort of wise enough to get out of the way for them to create their lives here and and perhaps you know take the farm we don't know where sort of thing and so um, that's 
to me is is also kind of exciting to have that that possibility. Now, t- tell our listeners about Thursdays. Thursdays I thought are th- th- um, Thursday sounded really kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. There, so Thursdays are our community day. So because there's layers to the farm, there's the community layer and then there's the business. On Thursdays, what happens is everybody who lives on the farm comes together to, to work for the morning. And so we, we have a weekly, that's also when we sort of have our weekly meeting. So we gather in the morning on Thursdays and we, we talk about um, what we're going to do that day, but also we talk about anything that, that needs to be talked about in a group setting. So we're not sort of tackling like big issues of the direction of the farm or anything like that, but like day-to-day issues of like the chicken water is frozen or, you know, whatever sort of <laughs> things we're, the we're, we're dealing with. chicken water is frozen so. as well, it might be. <laughs> <laughs> so so we're, we're discussing that type of thing. And then... Um, and then every so at the end at the end of that meeting we we share a gratitude circle which has become really really important for our our um, our community basically it's a way that we can really share I mean sometimes it's very uh, can be very simple just sharing what you're grateful for but other times and it's kind of evolved into this where it's really a chance for people to share through their gratitude it's it's a sharing of what's going on for people in that moment. And um, so we we have a gratitude circle, and then we all go off and we work together on these on sort of whatever we've agreed upon for the day, and then we come together at lunch and we share a lunch. And so that's our because we don't we do have our own houses and we have our own kitchens. We're not we're not always eating together. This is our one shared meal every week. Yeah, no, so, not everybody lives on the farm, right? No, and so, and well, this is something that has also become really incredible about Thursdays is initially Thursdays was really for everybody who was living on the farm. Um, but what has happened now is that there are people who join us on Thursdays just because they want to be part of what we're doing together. And so they don't live with us on the farm but they they've now become part of our community they're kind of they're kind of what we call like our extended community members and so they are so committed to they come you know unless they're sick or something they come every Thursday and they participate in our circle and and um, go to work and and share our lunch together and so that's been a really amazing kind of reflection of of what we're doing and how it how it's contributing on a whole other level for people because it's not just simply some sort of um they're certainly not doing it out of any kind of like obligation or responsibility they're really coming because now you you have you cover some unexpected um things in the ground in, in this book of I mean, it, really good tips about things, what to do with garden pests and what to do with, you know, I mean, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I love the chapter on tools we love. I mean, I, things you don't expect <laughs> at all. Um, and then you, you have, um, I mean, the children must have a wonderful time having all that built-in companionship and the freedom. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, the kids. I. I often sort of. I mean, I'm. I'm so grateful to to live here and and feel lucky, you know, to be part of this thing here. And then, but then I look at the kids and I'm like, 
oh, no, they're lucky. They're really lucky because they, they grow up, I mean, not really knowing any different, but it's really, it's such an incredible way to grow up for them. I mean, for one, they're, they're, they are free. Like, it's such a safe place for them to run around. And, and then, yes, like you said, there's other kids who, who aren't their siblings but are kind of like now like farm siblings where they're, they're they they can find someone to play with almost any time of day. Right. And then there's this group of adults who also is, you know, that they know that they know them and the adults, you know, it's this reciprocal relationship where they know these adults quite intimately um, but who, who who aren't their, their sort of their blood aunts and uncles right. and all of that. But um, they yeah. really get a, a lot of incredible yeah. sort of mentoring from other adults just growing up on the farm. Now, you mentioned um, the business. I, I think that, that that's something that's in addition to talking about the uh, book, I mean, itself, um, or, or the spirit of community. You have a business, I and mean, you have a, a farm market uh, that seems to be very successful. You, you do um, seed saving and trading globally, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and um, you, you have um, what do we call it? you have what, retreats. Uh, tell us about the retreats. Yeah, so our retreats are. Um, we've been running retreats for a, almost a couple of decades, although they really evolved. Um, you know, when they first started here on the farm, they were more like day-long retreats because we didn't have accommodation for people yet. We sort of, that that really grew slowly over time. And so, um, but yeah, now we have a, a full schedule of retreats through the year. Um, we have a couple of quiet months, sort of January and February, but generally we are, we are booked with retreats. And, and our focus is wellness-type retreats, so lots of meditation retreats, yoga retreats. We have, vo- like, song singing retreats, um, people, you know, doing hybrids of, like, yoga and art. We have um, an an- we have been doing a annual fiddle camp here every oh, year. That's so, great. So that lots of different, yeah, yeah, it's really <laughs> Yeah, lots of different things that sort of combine the, like, spiritual, psychological, uh, physical wellness, and then also now the arts. I mean, that's kind of the other way we're going now is... Um, Particularly through Jennifer's husband David, we we've been bringing music to the farm more and more, and so that um, yeah, the the retreats are 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 su- such a big part of what we do on the farm, and also so and they can be both. You know, we can live our lives and have the retreats happening, and and not not almost not even be aware of them because they they work so seamlessly with with everything else we're doing or some retreats we can be much more integrated with them and and the teachers you know all of the teachers that we get through the farm are are very welcoming and and so oftentimes there there's people on the farm who might participate in the retreat as well or or you know join in some other way so um yeah that's that's a big part of our business and then and then the farming our farming business is the other aspect. So really it's those two, two parts. And the farming how about, is... How about the website where, uh, that would summarize all these, the, the uh, Your website that would sort of um, outline and describe all these opportunities. 
Exactly, yeah. So, you know, right now, actually, it's, it's a bit of a changeover time for us. So if you look at our website right now, the, the schedule for next year is, hasn't been posted yet. So we finish up the year with a meditation retreat that goes over New Year's. And then our first retreat in the new year is actually in March. And so pretty soon here we'll have all our retreats up for 2019. And, um, yeah, so on our, on our website you can see what is being hosted here, and then you can connect directly to the, the teacher or the retreat manager as for, for bookings and stuff like that. Okay, so listeners, that's, that's it's www.stowell.com. Uh, Lake, L-A-K-E, farm, right? Dot yeah. com. Dot com. com. Yeah, that's okay. it. Okay. Well, I mean, it sounds like you have a very busy, active life here. <laughs> and, and, yeah, <laughs> so much we going do. on, yeah. We do. And, and you know, the, the farming part, too, you know, is such a, the farming is really sort of the heart of the farm. I mean, we really, that's, that's the piece that we love, um, and all of the you know we have people who live on the farm who work as the as sort of the farmers on the farm, and they they're managing the garden. But all of us who live on the farm also participate um, in our own ways because we're all getting our food from the farm, and you know it's a big part of our Thursdays too is contributing to growing our own food and our own seed. And all of that, and, and just yeah. being connected and, to that. And you have a, one of the partners is a chef, Heidi Hart, and uh, she does yeah. catering. And um, and don't forget, this is also a cookbook, listeners, so that you could find. Um, basically, they're fairly simple, um, but luscious, such as I kept eyeing the pavlova. By the way, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Heidi, Heidi, and her family have been here for 13 years and she is an incredible chef she is is sort of self-taught and just and incredibly kind of in, evolved into this into this role on the farm and so she cooks for all of the retreats that happen on the farm and and yes she, her inspiration is really the the food itself and so being on the farm and being so close to what's coming out of the garden right in the moment what's beautiful and fresh um and so yeah her like you said her recipes are a lot of them are quite simple and but just really amazing and and just to just so you're not entirely confused when you get the get the book because it says seven seasons on the front you and you and i both know the Really, there are only four. You just made seven, so you could create a bigger book. <laughs> yeah, that's right. When we when we started breaking breaking up the year, particularly actually talking about farming, you really realize the that the seasons, the four seasons. You know, the difference between early spring and late spring when you're out there farming. It's Huge. just it's like a different world. Know, and so we we just decided, you know what, we're going to break up the year. Oh, really how we live it. And, um, and so, yeah, we came up with seven seasons and, and so, but it is, yes, you're right. Just, it's just one year on the farm. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us today on, and on the menu radio, especially thank you for stepping in because, uh, 
this this was not your job, but you, yeah. it must be must be Thursday. So you decided. To, <laughs> yeah, that's right. you, you well, decided well, thank to, you, thank you so much for having me on. Yes, and, and much success with your book and your ongoing community. Well, thank you very much. Nice to talk to you both. You too. Okay, I think we need to promise you that we'll have paleo or carnivore <laughs> in next week's program. What do you say, sweetheart? Bye-bye. <laughs>